comes, the, the, the joy and the urgency of coming to hear the truth of the Word of God when you forget what it's for. Yet go ahead and stay in bed if you're just going to come hear me speak about something that is, is you know, some, something's my opinion. Stay in bed. Don't even come. But if you're going to come and hear the truth of the Word of God proclaimed, the authoritative, God-breathed Word that the Spirit of God uses to, to mold your soul and make you look like Jesus because He is worthy of glory, then by, by all means, run to the preaching of the Word. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. And we will beginning, be beginning the uh, one of the most well-known sermons in all of the world, perhaps, and certainly most likely in the Bible itself, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, and it is certainly is a joy to have been here for 10 years, and I hope I can reflect perhaps the uh, heart of Jacob who said he served Rachel or served for Rachel seven years and seemed to him as a single day because of his love for her. Well, it has been a joy to be here, and my love for you grows, and it's a great, great privilege and honor to have been able to bring the word over that time. Matthew chapter 4, or four excuse me, 5. Beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated. Now, we are a forgetful people, and we are constantly in need of reminders about the truths of our faith, and probably we are particularly in need of two reminders. The first would be that the righteous standard of God is completely beyond us, and we have the provision, we must have the provision of Christ in order to enter into a right relationship with Him. But secondly, we are also in need of a reminder that the work of Christ on our behalf must produce in us a passionate desire to live out the righteousness that we have been granted with ever-increasing love and holiness. The beauty of Jesus' first sermon, at least the first one recorded for us by Matthew, is that it provides us with both of those reminders, that the righteousness of Christ is absolutely necessary to be, to, to be able to serve Him, to honor Him, and to have a right relationship with Him. 
but that the righteousness of Christ is to be lived out in our lives continually with growth and depth. So what we'll see this morning is that the Sermon on the Mount reveals the true standard of righteous living required in the kingdom of heaven, which is only possible for those who have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Again, the Sermon on the Mount reveals the true standard of righteous living required in the kingdom of heaven, which is only possible for those who have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Now, you will remember as we are are keeping our, our markers in the text or in the life of Christ, that we've just been studying the beginning of the king's ministry. And we saw in chapter 4, after he was led into the wilderness, that after hearing about John being taken into custody, that is, the ministry of the herald ending, the ministry of the forerunner was completed, Jesus enters fully into his ministry of preaching, teaching, and healing. And we saw last week that the king was an itinerant minister. Jesus traveled from place to place. That's what chapter 4 uh, be, uh, began to reveal to us. It says he was moving, or he was, he was going all throughout the land of Galilee. And we saw, even as he called his disciples, he is walking, he is he's walking along the lake, he is constantly moving from town to town, and so therefore, much of his ministry, we need to remember, was repeated. The things that he said, the things that he did, would have been done over and over in the various towns, and really, that's what we have revealed for us in the Synoptic Gospels. The three Gospels putting together a picture of what Jesus did during his itinerant ministry, and so many times we'll have similar sayings, and yet they weren't in the same place, or similar actions, and yet they were done at different times. So we need to remember that, even when we come to the Sermon on the Mount here. So the king traveled, and really we were challenged to remember that we have, have been given the, the ministry to hold our things, to hold our possessions, even to hold our place where we live in this world lightly. That although we are not all called to travel in that same way, we are called as travelers here in this world. And I pray that perhaps there was some soul searching, some considering of how tightly you hold to things that we might be able to minister even as our king did. And then we talked about his preaching and teaching ministry. He preached the word, or he taught the word in the synagogues, he would come really and exposit the Old Testament, and then also he would go out and he would preach about the kingdom. And we said that those two two concepts, preaching and teaching, are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, that's what we're about to see this morning, is that the Sermon on the Mount is truly teaching, and yet it is also preaching, proclaiming the nature of the kingdom out in the very fields, or as we will see on on the mountaintop, on the side of the mountain. So the king traveled, the king preached and taught, and then we also looked at the fact that the king healed, and he had a healing ministry unlike anything which has ever been seen in this world. And nothing even that the church does today, and please, might it be clear, God still does the work of healing. He is still the king. And yet the king is not present in his physical form on this earth, and so that healing ministry looks differently. And as we pray as a church for those who are are sick or pray for those who are wrestling, certainly God in his time and in his way provides, and he certainly does heal. But nothing, nothing, even with the entire church essentially gathered together as we consider all that the church does, it's nothing like what Jesus did when he was here on earth, literally emptying hospitals. Right In each town that he went, they would bring all of the sick, it said, and he healed all that he had physically physical time to heal. Sometimes he would limit on the, on the basis of faith or, or belief, as we will see as we move through Matthew, but that was rare. Usually it was just simply healing everyone. And so there is no ministry that has ever been or ever will be again like this until the king returns in his physical form. The king healed. And yet we learn from that, although we do not heal in the same way that he does, although we pray for healing, we ask that God would work in the lives of those who are sick or hurting, that we must have compassion, that that is our heart, that we long to bring the truth of the gospel to bear. We long to bring into the lives of people such comfort as we can in order that we might represent the king well and we might also prepare the way for the word that is to be spoken to them. 
So that is the beginning of the ministry of the king. And now we will get a, get a really a full-orbed view at how Jesus taught. What did the king preach? And we will be here for quite some time. Now, you might be looking at the outline going this morning. Yeah, we're going to be here for quite some time this morning. My daughter looked over at me and went like this. We shall see. The goal is to give an overview of the sermon this morning, and then we will be taking it piece by piece, sometimes phrase by phrase, sometimes moving a little bit more quickly. But although the sermon itself, and really you could read this in about three to five minutes, and I was tempted to do that this morning, the sermon probably went on for several days, yet we will spend much more than that as we try to dig into the themes that Jesus presents at the beginning of his ministry, and really which form the foundation of all of his preaching and teaching that will go forward from here. So let's first look, if you'll drop your eyes down to the text in chapter 5, verse 1, let's look at the timing of the sermon. When did this happen? When did this famous sermon, perhaps again, the most famous sermon ever preached, what was the timing? Well, chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, as we have said, it is not always so in Matthew that things follow chronologically one after the other. And it may be that there is a time... Uh, there's, uh, there's a period of time in here. Perhaps it is that Jesus has called his disciples. It seems that perhaps Luke gives us that time frame, and he's already called all 12 of them. Nonetheless, these two seem to be related together. That is the large crowds in verse 25, and then when Jesus sees the crowds in chapter 5, verse 1, and so as they are coming to be healed in whichever particular time, be it exactly during the time of his ministry uh, as presented in verse 25, and really remember that's kind of a general overview of what was going on everywhere he went in Galilee, but when, when these crowds gathered to be healed and to receive the benefit of the ministry of the king in that way, Jesus then takes the time to do really ultimately what is more necessary than their physical healing. He now takes the time to, to essentially sit them down and preach them a sermon, to tell them how it is essentially that they may enter into the kingdom and how it is that they are to live in that kingdom something which will last them far beyond the physical healing that he has provided. So he sees the crowds, and he uses this opportunity to preach, right? And this is what he often did. This is the pattern of his ministry. The crowds would gather, and then Jesus would preach the word, preach his word or preach the Old Testament, either one, and usually both combined. So the timing of the sermon is when he sees the crowds, and it is vital for them to hear this truth that they might move past the physical healing that they have received to the spiritual healing that each one of them so desperately needed. So we have, that is the timing of the sermon. Next, the setting. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Well, the setting, it says here, is he, he went up on the mountain. We kind of get the picture here of some huge, you know, maybe like going up to Klingman's Dome, although even here, the mountains in, in East Tennessee are not quite the same as the mountains where I grew up, like the Rockies. Those are big mountains. So maybe we think, you know, if you're, depending on where you're from, you think up on the mountain, well, he did some mountain climbing. Maybe he was, you know, he was way up on top. doesn't seem to be the indication for several reasons. One, he's got huge crowds. Huge crowds don't climb big mountains generally, right? And there are a lot of sick people that are, that are there, and most likely he's not making them, you know, climb up onto the mountain in order to minister to them. So probably a, a better idea of the translation here is he went up on the side of a hill, seems to be the idea. And though there were gentle sloping hills all around the shore of, Gal of the Lake of Galilee, most, most of them are found on the north side. And so it seems that he is in the hill country to the west or the north of the Lake of Galilee. The hills rise up steeply from the shore, but they're not mountains in any way. And so he went up on the side of the mountain, and most likely he went there because that was the most natural place to gather the people. He would be somewhere, perhaps at the top of one of the hills, if this is the same time as the Sermon on the Plain, as recorded in Luke, where it says he was on flat ground. Well, if it's the same sermon, he was, went up to the top of the hill, and there was a flat, grassy place there. 
or he was in the middle of the hill and the people were gathered then down below him. This would have formed somewhat of a, a natural amphitheater so that his voice could be heard uh, even as he was sitting to speak, as we will see. So this is a good place to gather the people. It's right next to where he's been ministering. And so he gathers them together to preach his sermon. He went up on the mountain. And R.T. France, who wrote uh, kind of a, a foundational uh, commentary on the book of Matthew, says he, he translated this into the hills. And I, I think that's probably a better translation so that we will see him not climbing some big mountain around uh, Jerusalem, but that he is, he is up on the hills around the Lake of Galilee. So that is the setting of the sermon. He gathers the people, and, and for wherever exactly he is, Jesus viewed this as the most suitable place to preach and teach. And really, quite honestly, Jesus viewed any place as a good place to preach and teach. So the actual setting itself, not so much important. There are times when the crowds were so great, he did it kind of in the opposite way. Instead of going up on a hill by the lake, he would get in a boat and go out onto the water a little ways, and they would gather around the shore. It didn't matter any place he was. When crowds gathered, Jesus' plan was not simply to heal and to minister in that way, but to preach, and this is what he did. Well, next, let's look at the authority of the sermon. He saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, this probably strikes you and strikes us in our culture as a little strange. When someone sits down in our culture, they're going to have a talk. They're going to share with you. They're probably going to ask you, so what do you think about that? Or how would you interpret that? Or something like that. That's the way we tend to view this kind of Bible study, right? You go up or you you, you sit down, and that's how you're going to draw people in and maybe have a discussion. Well, it was exactly the opposite in the day of Jesus. The teachers of the day would have their followers, and when they sat down, that was the place where they began their authoritative teaching. In fact, it was viewed that if you were walking around and discussing things, that that may or may not have been authoritative. Now, with Jesus, anything he said was authoritative. But if you were talking to a normal rabbi, you'd be walking in conversation, he would be speaking, and he you know, may or may not be proclaiming something that everyone should hear or, or that would become foundational to the truth that he taught. But when he sat down, this was his signal of saying, what I'm about to say is authoritative. This is teaching that you need to hear, and it is teaching that you need to obey. So he sits down. Right? Again, he did not intend his words to be taken as suggestions. He was not sharing with them. He was not doing a talk. That drives me crazy. That's, I, I, I've been involved in, in youth ministry for many years, and that's what it has been called for about the past 15 years is when you're going to share the word, they call it, well, we're going to have a talk. And people say, you're going to come and do the talk. And I'm, I'm not going to come and do the talk. I'm not here to just share about what I think or have you know, some, some touchy-feely conversation. We're here to preach the word. Now, there are times to sit and talk and discuss. But that is not when we are preaching authoritatively the truth of the word of God. It's not open for discussion. And so when we're preaching these truths, we're not having a talk. We're not sitting down and just sharing. And Jesus wasn't doing that either. And by the way, the people got that point. As we, when we'll jump to the end of the sermon, we'll see that they were amazed at his authority. And again, I and we do not share the same authority as the king of kings because we are not the king. However, when we are preaching his words, then those words carry his authority. And they are to be spoken in such a way. It is in many ways a travesty today, even the way that, that preachers and churches are beginning to position the preaching of the Word of God. There's nothing sacred about a pulpit. You can move it around. We've had different ones, big, small, it doesn't matter. The issue is what is, being, what is viewed? How is the speaker being viewed? What is he doing when he preaches? And so often what is being done today is an attempt to kind of soften it. So he's not really preaching authoritatively. So what do we do? We'll grab a stool and we'll sit and the, the preacher will share with the audience. And, and we'll have a glass pulpit so it doesn't seem quite so intimidating. He's hiding behind it. I'm not sure exactly why that's a big deal. We could have a glass pulpit. But he sits and he shares and it, we put it all around so everyone feels like we're just, we're just kind of sharing with each other rather than 
holding to and really proclaiming the authoritative nature of what is being done because people don't want to hear authoritative words. They want to hear words that they can pick and choose. They want to hear words where they can say, well, I'll take that and I'll take that. And again, if a preacher is just getting up there and sharing his own opinion, if he wants to tell you about politics, he wants to share a little bit about psychology, well, then you can pick and choose. In fact, you should probably just leave because there's not much that, I mean, why don't, why don't your opinions just as important as his? Maybe you know more about psychology. You know more about politics than he does or economics or whatever it might be. You probably do. So you really don't need to hear that. But what you need to hear is the authoritative proclamation of the word of God. And that's what Jesus was doing. He sat down, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach. This is the word of God, and it comes to us for our change, for our life transformation, for our humility before it, that we might be totally different after hearing it. And I wonder sometimes, If week after week as you come, I think you believe, I don't think you'd be here otherwise that the word of God is authoritative, but do you, every week, do you step into this room ready to be changed by the word of God? Ready, not simply to hear interesting things or maybe new things from the word through the exposition, but you come ready to be changed, that the word of God would impact you, that it would be the fire and the hammer that it's supposed to be, because that's why you're here. And maybe you forgot that, and, and maybe you then wrestle, it's like, why even get up? You start to lose the, the, the joy and the urgency of coming to hear the truth of the Word of God when you forget what it's for. Yet go ahead and stay in bed if you're just going to come hear me speak about something that is, is you know, some, something's my opinion. Stay in bed. Don't even come. But if you're going to come and hear the truth of the Word of God proclaimed, the authoritative, God-breathed Word that the Spirit of God uses to, to mold your soul and make you look like Jesus because He is worthy of glory, then by, by all means run to the preaching of the word. And it has nothing to do with me. That is my personality, my abilities even, my, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that it is the word being proclaimed. And anyone that can do that accurately, truthfully, properly interpreting the scriptures, anyone is to be heard because the authority is the word of God. So it's nothing come here and hear me preach. It is come and hear the word preached. And it matters not who's standing here as long as they are preaching it properly. Jesus, the king, sits down to preach an authoritative message that would be, is life transforming. He's going to talk about the kingdom. He's going to talk about what it means to be in it, what it means to be, to be molded and changed by, by himself, by his message, so that you can actually live within his kingdom. He's going to lay out all of the principles that are necessary. And my prayer is that we will be transformed. Many of you Maybe most of you are already believers. Your hearts have been converted. And by the way, as we will see, that's absolutely necessary for this sermon to have any immediate life-changing impact upon you. It's essential. But none of us, not a single one of us, looks as much like Christ as we would like to. Correct? That's why you're here. Not one of us. And and I believe that fully for you sitting here. Because I don't think there's anyone sitting here going, I'm already Christ-like enough. We would have to move quickly away from you if that were the case. And yet, I, I don't believe you think that. Nor do I think you come in saying, well, you know, I'll just, uh, I don't really want to hear or learn, but we forget and we're not prepared. And this sermon is to change us. And I pray that it will change the entire tenor of our church as we deepen in righteousness, deepen in love, deepen in an appreciation for the nature of the kingdom and the need to spread that kingdom throughout the world. And if we are unchanged over these next months that we will be in the sermon, then we, we have serious problems. But I don't believe that's going to be the case. I look forward to an absolutely transforming work of God through this sermon, always through every message. 
But as we delve into the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that we will be impacted in a deep and profound way. And that's my prayer. But it will not be unless you understand the nature of the authority of Scripture. And Jesus is proclaiming that even in his posture, he sits to teach because that is the authoritative chair, as it were, of the King of Kings. He is making a divine pronouncement. And we are simply proclaiming that. I am simply proclaiming what he said to you. Well, who is the audience of this sermon then? That's the nature of it. That's the authority of the sermon. Who's the audience? It says, after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, remember, the crowds are there. They're following. And yet it is interesting and certainly not uh, merely circumstantial that Matthew mentions the disciples coming. And it would seem in this case that he is making a distinction between the crowds or those who generally followed and his disciples, most, most assuredly the 12, those who are closest to him. And it appears that in this time in his ministry, he's already called all 12 of them. He'll reveal that. Matthew will show us who they are in Matthew chapter 10. That comes a little bit later in, in the way Matthew presents the information. But chronologically, the 12 have most likely already been chosen, and so they come to sit. And what seem probably also represented here are those who were true followers of Christ, those who understood that when he said, follow me, it meant to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow after him. Because we will see, again, a variety of uses of the word disciple and largely depends on the context. Sometimes disciples were pure physical followers. Sometimes they were those who, were, who truly believed in him. And it would seem that in this case, Matthew is highlighting the fact that although all the crowds are being addressed, it is his disciples, those who have believed in him, those who believe is the Messiah. And he is preaching to them essentially because they are the first ones who will be able to receive this message because the message is about how to live in the kingdom. Yes, we will also see what it takes to get into the kingdom, but that's not the primary focus. The primary focus is how do you live within the kingdom if you trust the king, if you've followed the king, if you've repented of sin and believed in Jesus. And at this point, believing that Jesus in, in, in the salvation history chronology of Matthew, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. So believing that he is the deliverer, well, then this message is primarily for them. Now, be careful here. I don't mean by disciples, those who truly trusted in him, those who are at some deeper level of faith. And that the Sermon on the Mount is all about some second step Christianity. You get, you know, you come to Christ and then you get serious. No, these were believers. And every believer is to live as the Sermon on the Mount proclaims. Every believer from the moment they believe. This is not some kind of deeper level, higher life teaching that Jesus is giving them. Well, now, for those who are really serious, come on around. The disciples here would be those who believed he was the Messiah, those who trusted in him, those who are closest to him. That's the audience. Now, again, remember, the entire, all of the crowds are listening. It's not as though Jesus isn't aware of that as well. He understands and knows that. And so we will see in his sermon that the things that he addresses will also drive them towards either accepting or rejecting him, even as he draws his disciples towards a, a life in the kingdom that transcends anything that they, they had considered before. But what's the content then of the sermon? And here we're going to give just a bit of an overview. I'm going to give you an outline so we can kind of keep markers in our text as we move through it. It's important to kind of keep it all in a whole because remember, this, this was over a couple of days most likely, and you can read it in a much shorter period of time than that. And yet when we go slowly, we're going to have to keep the overview in mind. So it says, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them saying, this is another, just another way of Matthew saying this is an official discourse. This is a time when Jesus was presenting the truths of the kingdom in authoritative fashion. 
And Matthew uses this for each of the five major discourses or, or preaching times of Jesus in the book of Matthew. He opens it this way, where it says he opened his mouth and began to teach. And he finishes, and with generally the same words each time, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, and we'll see that in Matthew chapter 7. So he opens with a, a formula to say this is Jesus presenting truths of his ministry and preaching, and then he closes to say we're done with that teaching, and we'll move on. And most likely, again, when, when Matthew does this, he is referencing one entire sermon of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to spend time this morning to, to talk about all of discussion, the discussion about, well, is this the same sermon as Luke's Sermon on the Plain? I don't think it is. I think they're different because Jesus spoke many of the same things, different places, different times. But nonetheless, there's just amazing amounts of verbiage on that as well. as Where were all these sayings taken from? Did he say all of these at this time? Or did he take some from other times? There is absolutely no reason at all to think that Jesus didn't say all of these things exactly like this during this time of preaching. And it seems to me foolish to even be bantering around about that. There isn't any need to do that. It's all here. It's written. Nothing in the other synoptic gospels contradicts any of this. And the fact that he said similar things in other places doesn't mean that then Matthew grabbed them from those other times and stuck them here. There's, there's absolutely no reason to believe that. He spoke it all. He spoke it here. This is what he said. And those crowds heard these words. And so we can take that. And there, again, we can take that for truth, all of it, and not, again, nothing that Matthew even drew from somewhere else. There's just simply no need. So what's the theme of this sermon then? Right? And again, that's what it is. Jesus is preaching. It's a fairly long sermon because it was probably a lot more here. You think I teach long? Jesus most likely spoke a lot longer most of the time. Remember, he would speak for so long that the people ran out of food. And then he had to provide for them because they couldn't eat. Now, that's the thing. I can't preach that long because I can't provide food for you, right? I can't, I can't make it, so I got to send you home. But even the Apostle Paul, remember, he would preach so long that people would fall out of windows and die. So a 50-minute message, 60, is, is, not, is not going to kill you probably. Jesus spoke for a lot longer than that. And this was a long sermon, but he arranged it as a sermon. We see that it has a structure, it has an organization, he's moving from point to point, and he is making a point. He has a theme, and the theme is simply this. The theme is the characteristics of life in the kingdom of heaven. He's just said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his, that's his base message. And then Matthew has just said, Jesus came proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was preaching about the kingdom. Well, now he's going to tell them, this kingdom that I'm bringing, this is what life within that kingdom looks like. Now, really, in essence, by application, we will see how to get into the kingdom. But that's not his primary focus, and that will help you. He's not laying out, here's how you get into the kingdom. In fact, he already said that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and imply, believe in me. He's already told you how to get into the kingdom, so he's not going to spend a lot of time on that, and you won't see that here. And that confuses some, because like, wait a minute. He's now preaching all of these things that we're supposed to do, and how are we going to do that if we're not part of the kingdom? Well, that's the whole point. You have to get in but he's not spending, and I was going to spend some time on it, but that's not the primary, he's not like setting it up with, okay, here's how you get in, he's already said that, repent, right? That's how you get into the kingdom. Well, when you're in, this is how you live. That's the theme, characteristics of life in the kingdom of heaven. And the outline, you can just write it down if you want, but generally, the uh, and there's many ways we could outline this, I suppose, but there's an introduction to the sermon itself. Matthew provides that, that's in verses one and two, and that's all we're doing this morning. Then as Jesus begins to preach, we see the blessedness of the kingdom. That's verses really 3 through 12, all the Beatitudes we call them, blessed, blessed, blessed. So the blessedness of the kingdom, that in verses 3 through 12. Then we have the citizens of the kingdom, as he begins to tell them what it is to be, uh, to be the light of the world, 
in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5. So the citizens of the kingdom. Then he will spend an extended period of time on righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom. Really, verses 17, chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 7, verse 12. This is what righteousness, this is how you live for God in the kingdom. This is what you do. And he lays out in extreme detail and, and, and radical detail, as we will see, what that righteousness looks like. Then really at the end, interestingly enough and, and very fittingly, he'll talk about entrance into the kingdom. That's what we'll begin to see. Right? How do you get into this kingdom? He's been talking about how you live in it. We, we would almost view that as backwards. Well, we first want to know how to get in and then tell me how to live in it. Well, he's already again told them how to get in, but now he's telling them, here's how you live within it. And then he ends the sermon by saying, here's how to get in. And I think that's an incredibly purposeful because after hearing everything that's involved in the kingdom, it should have been, and if you're an unbeliever here this morning, it will be, or over these next weeks and months, it will be on your mind. How can I do that? How is that possible? No one can live like that. Well, that is part of the point. No one can. And so at the end, he says, you want in? You want to be able to do this? Let me tell you how you get in. Entrance into the kingdom is found at the end of the sermon verses 7, 13 through 27. And then there's really, Matthew provides us with kind of the close to this, the response to the sermon in verses 28 and 29. So that's the outline. We've just done the whole sermon. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.